So we're on our third passage from Luke chapter 1. We saw, or we heard about the announcement of the birth of John. The man for the season, right? Not just for that season, but we also see the church uh, taking the place of John today and announcing the, the clarity, with clarity, the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. And then we saw the man for eternity, this man is the real man, the one who is for all eternity. That was connection with the announcement of uh, the birth of Jesus to Mary. And today we look at Mary's song. And um, Elizabeth is six months pregnant with John. And after the, the angel announces to Mary that she will give birth to the Son of God, immediately... She leaves her home, takes a long trek, probably two, three day journey, to go to the house of Elizabeth and Zechariah, especially Elizabeth. And they have some real neat things to share. Mothers like to do that, right? And uh, it's a great time. And then as they're talking and blessing one another, guess whose baby jumps inside the womb? Elizabeth's baby starts jumping with joy. Are we jumping with joy with the coming of Christ? Waiting for a second coming? So he's jumping with joy. And, uh, and then Elizabeth says, Blessed are you, Mary. She doesn't have an ounce of jealousy in her. She just sees that here's the Lord. Jesus is the Lord who's going to bring deliverance to God's people and to us. So it's a, it's a beautiful story. And then she breaks out into a song. And she's very calm about it. She's very humble about it. Why would the Lord use her? She needs a Savior too. And uh, that's where we're at. Luke chapter 1, verse 39. I'm going to start at verse 39. It gives a bit of the context of, of uh, Mary visiting Elizabeth. And then you have the song of Mary from 46 to 56. We hear God's word. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah. She's excited. And she entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. It happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the baby leaped in her womb. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. And Mary said, and here's her song, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant, for behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy 
as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. Of course, three months later, John would be born, right? To six months, to three, nine months, so it's time to leave. I'm going to focus on 31, 32, 33. There's so much in this psalm or this song of Mary. But 31, 32, 33, he has shown strength. In other words, the Lord God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Talk about a reversal, right? Upside down to right side up. Anyway, there's so much in here. I don't know if you're familiar with a, this little book called God Rest Ye Mary. This comes from the song, God Rest Ye Mary, Gentlemen. There's a little book called God Rest Ye Mary. It's written by uh, Douglas Wilson. But anyway, he explains why, why Christmas, or you could say why the incarnation, God the Son becoming man. He explains why Christmas is the foundation, is the basis for everything, for all of life, is the basis for Good Friday, is the basis for Easter, is the basis for the Ascension, is the basis for everything. Why is it? Because Jesus could not have died on the cross if he did not have a body, there would be no salvation. God became a man in order to die for Adam's helpless race, right? We're all the children of Adam. We're all helpless. And so we needed God to become a man in order to save us from our sins. This is why This is the only way of salvation through Jesus, right? The God who became man. He became man, right? Not only to help or deliver Adam's helpless race. He also became man in order to become the head, or you could say the leader of the new human race. Who is the new human race? All who belong to him through faith. Whatever country you're from, doesn't matter. Whoever belongs to him through faith. Right? He, he's the head of the new human race. He did all of that for us by dying in his body, by rising with his body, and ascending into heaven in his body, and he's still there in his body. Real body. That's the gospel, isn't it? The one who died and rose for us. And then uh, in this book, he goes on to explain how Christmas, how is it that Christmas changes everything? Everything. It changes music, it changes the arts, it changes education, it changes everything. And he gives one example politics. Yeah, did you know incarnation is political? It's very political. Not political in the bad sense, but it affects the political sphere. Christmas, what does it represent? It represents 
Christ's kingdom. Remember the announcement to Mary? And he shall reign on the throne of David forever. That's a political statement. He is king. He is Lord over all. You ever wonder why Herod got so worried when he heard that Jesus was born? When the king was born? He was worried. Because if he's king, if he's the great king, then Herod isn't the ultimate king. Neither is Caesar. It's a political statement. If Christ is Lord, then Herod isn't. Then Prime Minister Trudeau is not. Neither is President Biden. Why is it, when you think about it, why is it that public officials do not allow the nativity scene, right? The scene of the baby Jesus on public property. Someone could say, well, it's just a cute baby on display. Uh -uh, It's not about that. They recognize it's about something about who he is, who he represents. He's the king. He came, it comes down to this. The one who's incarnate, the one who took on flesh, is king. He's Lord. And as Christians, we confess Jesus is Lord. This is a political statement. Because it brings all kinds of responses. And that's what Mary sings about. Right? Two classes of people. Not rich and poor, but those who respond in faith and those who do not. Mary sings about this. This is an amazing thing. That the incarnation can bring this kind of volatile or volatility and upheaval in a society. In families, yes. But even in a society, it brings all kinds of upheaval. Right? People respond to it. The child, that's this child, it's this very child that's going to be born to Mary, the Virgin Mary. This is the culmination of all the promises throughout the entire Old Testament. The whole Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi promises this. And now it culminates in the incarnation, in God the Son becoming man. It comes down to this one moment, this one central moment in history, not just religious history, but all of history, world history, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And you can imagine, you know, the two mothers, the thrill, the excitement, two mothers having babies, right? One old lady, one old woman, Elizabeth, that was a miraculous, miraculous uh, conception. But same with the virgin. They had a lot to talk about. But that was not really the point here. This is not why it's written in Scripture. Right? The point is, there's more happening. God is doing something wonderful. Not only beginning a new life, but beginning a new creation. Making a new creation out of this old creation. This old creation which is passing away, which is dying, which will come to its end. But something new emerges. And that will be forever. That's the two creations. And so Mary breaks unto a song. 
And she knows the Old Testament really, really well. So important that we know Scripture. She knows the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, really, really well. Her song, though she doesn't say, you know, Samuel says or Isaiah says, but her whole song is just filled with allusions to the Old Testament, especially from the song of Hannah. If you read the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2, right? Hannah has a song there too. And Mary, you could say, borrows from it because what Hannah was singing, but now what Mary is singing is even more significant. The song here is called the Song of Mary. Sometimes you'll see the word magnificat as some sort of strange Latin word. But forget the word magnificat. But it comes from the first verse there in verse 46. My soul magnifies the Lord. That's the key here. My soul makes great of the name of the Lord. Mary's not great. God is great. My soul magnifies the Lord. That's how she begins. And everything in that song is just her in a calm, humble way. Just giving expression of praise. She's so happy for the Lord's coming. As Israel should be. And God's people. And you see it's divided into four stanzas. We sang, what? I think four stanzas of 122. Okay, this has stanzas as well. It has four different parts. Four verses, you could say. Even though it's divided into more verses. But in stanza one, if you look at verses 46, 47, 48, that's what she does. She begins by magnifying or just lifting up the name of God. So important that we do that. Because it's all about Him. Nothing about us. It's all about Him. And he, she magnifies God for what he has done, but also for her. Not only for all the people, but also for her. Why? Lord, you took notice of me. Why would you take notice of me? I mean, she's a poor maiden. She's, someone would say she was a slave. Uh, she was of a very humble station. She wasn't from a princely class, if you want to say that. Well, she was from the line of David, but she was a nothing, really, coming from Nazareth in those days. And yet, all generations, he says, because of this, all generations will call her blessed. Even today, we would say, Mary was blessed of the Lord. She does not say all generations will venerate her, No, she doesn't say that. She doesn't say that she will become a mediator. She doesn't say that. Again, she speaks of her own low situation where she needs a Savior. She herself needed a Savior. She exalts God because He is her Savior. But what she means is that all generations are going to bless her because of a marvelous way that God would even choose her to fulfill his plan to fulfill his promises, uh, his sovereign plan all throughout history. Why would God choose her? This is divine pleasure. It had nothing to do with how good Mary was. She's a sinner like all others. She feared the Lord, but so did Simeon, so did Anna, so did many others, Zechariah, Elizabeth. And yet, it's just simply God's good pleasure. That's the ground that he would choose a simple vessel, Mary, to accomplish his purpose, his virgin 
Stanza 2 sings of the impact that the incarnation will have beyond herself. It had a huge impact on her. But it's going to be beyond herself. It's going to have impact on everything. Verses 49 and 50 talks about that. She sings of the impact of God's mercy on all those who fear and trust Him. To this day, on all those who, who trust the Lord from generation to generation to generation. And when you look at stanza 3, 50, 51 to 53, His mercy is all the more striking when you contrast it with His severity to those who don't trust Him. Right? Those who trust Jesus. Those who do not trust Jesus. And that's what we come to today is verses 51 to 53. Our focus here is those verses. And you see here in the incarnation, God shows the strength of his arm. He shows the strength of his arm. Of course, that's a visual image, isn't it? Strength of his arm. How does he do that? By overthrowing evil powers. Rulers. And second of all, we're going to see by raising up the lowly, the humble, the afflicted, that is God's children. Okay? So that's where we're going. By overthrowing the evil powers, she sings. It's not just her song. (laughs) We sing. We sing the same song. Our political authorities might be angry for singing this. But it's truly a political statement. He has shown strength with his arm. Probably his right arm. Young guys, hey? Young guys. I remember when I was young too. I like to show the strength of my arm. I would pull up my sleeve. And then I would pull up my forearm and show my muscle. And then we would say, whoever had the biggest muscle was the strongest. Well, There's no comparison to God. God's arm, the arm of God here, stands for his strength, for his power. And it can be used in one of two ways. It can be used to deliver. You know how you can rescue a child from, let's say, a running falls and you just grab them. Right? It can be used to deliver, to uphold, to support Apostle Paul talks about God's arm in that way in Acts 13. For example, he speaks of how God, with an uplifted arm, brought his people out of the land of Egypt. There's almost the image of, here's all his people, and he puts his arm all around them, and he takes them out of the devil's hand, out of Satan's hand, which was personified in the Egyptians. He delivers them. They didn't do anything. He just took them out. That's the arm of God. The arm of God is also not only to use to deliver, but also to scatter, to bring down, to drive out. Song of Moses in Exodus 15. It's interesting. They sing out of joy the destruction of the Egyptian pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea because that was done by God's arm as well. Not, not to cuddle, but to to destroy. Verses 51 to 53, God's arm does both those things. There are two categories of people in the world. Two classes of people. We don't think in the world the way the world thinks. Rich and poor. 
or healthy and sick or elitist and those down there. That's not how God thinks. This is not how we should think ever. Right? Those are human categories. But on the one side, Mary pictures the proud, the mighty. And the rich here means the selfish rich, right? The ones who aggrandize themselves with their riches. Right? The proud, the mighty, the rich. You see that in verses 31, 32, 33. On the other hand, she speaks of the lowly and the hungry. On the one hand, then, God's arm puts down evil powers. On the other, God's arm raises his children and resurrects his children. He lifts them up, those who trust on him. So it's about trusting and those not trusting. And Mary sings of this. Do we dare sing of it? She sings of the reversal. There's a wrestler coming. That was announced in Genesis 3.15. And this wrestler is going to take down those evil powers. The powers of Satan. The powers of hell. The powers of death. The powers of sin. And bring salvation to those who can never get it. And that's accomplished through the one who was incarnate for us. The one through whom the one who would die and rise again from the dead. And ultimately, this prophecy, this song in 31 to 33, though we don't see it all with our eyes today, it will be fulfilled perfectly at Christ's return. So you could say Christ's incarnation then. And this is what Mary sings about. Marks the beginning of a new creation, a new humanity, a new world order. Christ is eternal king as head of his new people. And Mary is saying, hey, this is a picture of that. That's a picture of my own life, that reversal. Look where I was. <laughs> Look how God has raised me. Not because I'm anything, but because of God's goodness, God's mercy, and his grace for generations to come. This song here is also the song of the church. We long in expectation for that full redemption, for the full overthrow of evil powers. Do we not? We should. It's, it's a song here. And for the raising of the lowly, for the raising of his people. Generally speaking, God's people are poor and lowly. Why? It's because of the elites in our society. They're, off, they want, they're the ones that often rule. And the ones that often rule are often, not always, often hostile to God and hostile to Christ. In our day, Canada's political elite, cultural elites, are hostile to Christ and to faithful Christians. The more one has to lie and deceive and cheat and agree with the murder of babies and agree with the murder of seniors now, the more that one has to work against the family in order to be a governing official, the less the serious Christian will want to pursue that kind of life. Isn't that true? Because... 
It's something very different. The kingdom of darkness is doing what it does best, promoting death and destruction. That's not the kingdom of Christ. It promotes life and grace and health, spiritual health. But you know what? They seem to be on the top, don't they? They seem to be winning. And that's why we sing in the song, those who mourn in lowly exile here. In principle, Christ has won, but is still being worked out in history. The systems are set up that are set up seem to encourage to make people to give in and to be unfaithful in order to be popular. And so it was for God's people in the days when Mary sang this song. Who was emperor? Caesar Augustus. He said, you call me God. I'm your savior. That was the, uh, really the words of Caesar Augustus. Herod, a murderous man, cruel, the one who sliced off John the Baptist's head, an Edomite, he was king over Israel. God's people, you could say, were the underdogs. Don't we hear that in different countries today? Pakistan, other countries where you have that persecuted minorities. Christians are considered second class. They get second-rate jobs. This is what Mary is singing about. Even the religious leaders among the people themselves, the priests and scribes, the one who wore the long robes and acted very pious, they loved their positions. They exploited and took advantage of God's people, and God's people were just groaning, groaning under their burdens that the religious leaders were putting on them. They laid them heavy and thick on the people. It was hard. It was oppressive. Mary sings, and we sing. The incarnation really is good news. This spells the end of the evil powers. The beginning of the end. The culmination of all God's promises, beginning with Genesis 15, has come to this moment. The one to be born. Who is he? You talk about a reversal. He was the one who shared the glory with the Father from all eternity, God himself. The one through whom the entire world was made. And yet, because man in his sin wanted to be God, Christ, who is God, became man. He stooped all the way down to conquer. Born in a manger, all the way down. Born in a manger, born under the law, nailed to the cross for all whom he came to save. And this he did. This great reversal. There's no one who has humbled himself more than Christ himself did from his eternal glory to becoming a servant of servants. In order to do what? To overthrow those powers, those evil powers. And he did so through his resurrection. He reigns today, and he's the one who brings salvation to his people. That's what Christmas represents, his empire. And he's building his empire today throughout the world, calling all kings and princesses and presidents and prime ministers to submit to his reign. That's to be our song. That's our prayer for reversal. He is born to overthrow the proud, the mighty, and the rich. And so doing, what does he do? When he shows the strength of his arm by overthrowing the 
the, the evil powers, he's at the same time raising the lowly, the humble. He's raising his children, the weak. Mary sings this. She sings of God's mercy. There's mercy in God's right hand. The hand of power also shows his mercy toward the lowly. We sing it too. This is a song of faith. This is a song of hope that we even dare to sing in the streets. The song of Mary. We sing of the future as if God has already accomplished what Mary speaks of here. Notice, Mary, of course, knows the past, and that's why she's able to sing in the future. She sings of the future in such a way that she, she sings as if it's already happened. It's all past tense. She knows who God is. She knows her God. And so she sings. He has scattered. He has put down. He has exalted. He has filled. He has sent away. Why can't she, she sing this way? She knows her God. She remembers how God, the God of his people, put down Pharaoh. Put down the Canaanites. Put down the Philistines. Put down Sennacherib, Haman, Belshazzar. She remembered at the same time he, how God had exalted Joseph and Moses and Samuel and David and Esther and Daniel. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. We may sing of this reversal which is accomplished in Christ and which will be seen in all its fulfillment at Christ's return. Notice, God leads whom to see Jesus and to worship him? People who didn't know him. The wise men from the east. Who did he bypass? The priests. The religious leaders. They didn't care. God sends his angels to tell the news of the birth of Jesus. To whom? To lowly shepherds. Despised shepherds. And who does he bypass? Oh, the religious shepherds. They didn't care. They were too mighty. They were too proud. Our Lord Jesus Christ has compassion and saving grace for the broken, for the needy, and for the lowly and the hungry. The beautiful thing about his grace, about the mighty arm of God, is he can make us that way. That's how we come to salvation, to make us lowly. He makes us lowly. He makes us hungry. He makes us needy. The blind, it was a good thing, because now they see. The dead live. The deaf hear, the lame walk. The demons are expelled. The prostitute, forgiven. They believe. They trust. They are the children whom the Lord exalts, whom he fully satisfies. He exalts the lowly. He fills the hungry with good things. The proud and the mighty, they stay blind. They don't see it. They stay deaf. They don't hear it. As a matter of fact, what they hear, they become hostile often. They're dead in their sins. The religious leaders, after all of Christ reaching out to them, when he cried out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you as children. 
they would have none of it. They did not humble themselves to believe. And so God brought down their house in A.D. 70, and he sent them away empty. They had nothing. These proud leaders had nothing left. In his place, God built a new house, his spirit-filled house with true shepherds, with apostles. They replaced that old religious segment, and he replaced them with something new. Many of them fishermen, trained, robust, full of the spirit. And then pastors and elders and deacons filling their hands with his gifts, filling the church, his children with his gifts. Yeah, the gospel of God's grace in Jesus turns families upside down. It divides. It brings division. It tears. It turns societies upside down. That's the nature of the gospel. It's political. It has huge political implications. Remember Paul and Silas? They weren't there to try to bother anybody. They're just there to bring the gospel. They went to the synagogue, to the Jews. That's what he was commanded to do. And he preached the power of Christ, the one who meets all our needs, the one who is compassionate, the one who died and arose again from the dead to give us life. He preached it to needy and broken sinners who were not right with God. Some of the Jews were persuaded, but you know, it's interesting. Many Gentiles joined and even many leading women, Gentiles. But among the Jews, there were many who did not. And what did they do? They took some evil men, again, the evil powers, gathered a mob and started a riot in the city. And they brought them to the rulers of the city saying, those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. They are acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. (laughs) It's political, right? We're either with Jesus or against Jesus. That's what the gospel does. It changes. It transforms hearts. And as it does so, it turns our world upside down. Or you could say right side up, because that's where true humanity is. True humanity is reflected in in the Lord saving the people from sin. It's his hand. There is another king, Jesus. We confess him. We yield our allegiance to him. He's our king. And sometimes to obey Jesus means to go against family wishes. Sometimes it goes against the decrees of our governing authorities. We must, at times. We must disobey, at times. Because we're obeying Jesus, the King. Yeah, yeah. And then it becomes clear. Oh yeah, the, when, when, when that becomes clear that there's a line, then, the, then they, they realize, well, the gospel comes with a summons. Oh, we, you're calling us to believe? Jesus is calling us to believe? Oh yes, he is. He's calling you to believe, to submit, to know that there's forgiveness of sins in him and all the promises and all the gifts of salvation. But if you don't, you'll perish. That's the kind of king he is. You know, the mighty on the thrones today speak about compassion. It's only a word that they use. There's not real compassion. What? Throw the unborn under the bus? That's a service they pay for? That's compassion? 
made medical assistance in dying? Here, if you want to end your life, we'll give you our doctor. We'll give you a prescription over the counter. That's compassion? That's cruelty. That's the opposite of compassion. Throw the seniors under the bus? What? Go get an abortion? Go get medical assistance death? It's not about compassion. It's ugly. It's death. It's about convenience, not compassion. It's all about me, me, me. Proverbs 12.10 says, The tender mercies of the wicked, so then, the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. That's the mighty. That's the rich. That's the, the arrogant. What a contrast to the gospel. Our Lord Jesus laid down his life. He gave his life. He has compassion. He in turn would say, Bring them here to me. I'm gonna, I offer. He offers saving grace to the broken, to those whom the world considers burdens. You know, the seniors, they're burdens to society. Let's offer death. You know, the world considers burdens and inconveniences. And then we come to realize the way of God is so different than the way of the world, the way of Christ, right? The saving grace to the broken. He is full of compassion, calling them out. There is hope. There is fill. He fills the hungry. He fills all our needs. I love the verse in 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. God has chosen the foolish things of the world, the weak, the maimed, right? To put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. This is really a, you could say this is a, a verse out of Mary's song. One day at Christ's return, man's wisdom will, once, will be once and for all exposed for the folly and for the cruelty that it is. We must bring the gospel because it is the, it's, 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 it's the, it's the, it's the word of compassion. That's Christ's compassion. Him reaching out to those who our elites would want to get rid of. Christ the King will return and he will make all things right, overthrowing the powers of evil forever and ever. True, you know, God's right hand is full of mercy for his people. He offers his compassion on all who trust on Christ. That's the simple call here. Trust. Trust on him. He's not looking for a perfect life from you. You don't have a perfect life. He's not looking for one with all, you know, where you, where you have everything, your act together. No. All of us don't have our act together. We don't. That's precisely why the incarnation is so that he could bring our act together. We feel sometimes anxious. I think a lot of us don't know of this of one another, but if we know ourselves, God knows us even more. Anxious, anxiety, or easily afraid. You come to know your inadequacies, all the shortcomings, all the struggles against your sins, the limitations, 
the imperfections, your struggles to try to remain faithful to the Lord. And you know, it's good that God has us in this spot. Why? Because in His mercy, God keeps us from becoming proud, from becoming mighty. He uses all those anxieties, those struggles, those limitations, those inadequacies, see, so that we can rely upon Him. He's the one. He's the Savior. That was Mary. She praises God, her Savior. Do trust Him for all your needs. To not trust Him is really an expression of unbelief. But to trust Him for all your needs, He will supply. He will always supply. He always has supplied. He exalts the lowly. He fills the hungry with good things. Notice that good things is not just food. <laughs> I'm not talking about hungry people who don't have food here, although may include that. But it's with all your needs. All your needs and your, whatever your specific situation is, He meets that need. He always has. He always will. Doesn't necessarily always meet our wants, but always our needs. You can trust him. He's that kind of God. He has that strong arm. That strong arm that provides. He provides. Thank God. May this song of Mary also be our song of faith. In our homes. In all society. May this be our testimony of God's faithfulness to us. Christ is coming again. And he will make all things new. And you know what we can look forward to? 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. Eyes has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has entered the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And you will be lifted up as never before. And you will be filled with good things, even more good things, to perfection. Amen.